0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: Well, for for the most part, I mean the, the footprint of, of where you are is going to be most interested in sort of row crops and broadacre crops: corn, soybean, wheat, cotton, peanuts,
0: you know, wheat and sorghum. August fifteenth, two thousand twenty-three. Tanner Delaney here for the Tuesday edition of the Ag News Daily podcast. I'm ready to get started. Are you?
2: I am. I'm feeling well-rested, although some jet lag kicked my butt early last night, Tanner, so I slept about 10 hours, so I'm uh, wide awake and ready to go.
0: Holy smokes. I don't know if I could physically do that. I feel like my my internal alarms would be going off and ringing bells. Well,
2: I woke up at about 3 o'clock this morning and laid awake <laughs> for a while, but then I fell back asleep, so it's all good.
0: <clears throat> that is. I love uh, looking at the weather and learning new terms. We have a heat dome that is developing over the heartland. The United States will have the heat in the central portion, as well as part of the southern regions towards the end of this week. Along with a tri- along with this, we'll be triggering a string of days where temperatures will be in the upper 90s and 100s. Of course, for our fans here in Iowa, that's going to make the last couple of days of the state fair kind of warm. Texas has been a focal point of the unrelenting heat this summer. Temperatures in Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston running three to five degrees above the historical average since June 1st. We also see parts of Oklahoma that are in effect of excessive heat. The forecast for central Oklahoma will last Through the weekend, the National Weather Service says this does increase the risk of wildfires as temperatures will hit triple digits and wind speeds will increase and relative humidity will remain really low. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that and hopefully we won't have any wildfires to report on. We also see that there's a severe threat for Wednesday. For the amount of instability in parts of the central United States, states that could develop damaging winds up to 70 miles per hour in a storm cell and large hail up to ping pong ball size. We'll continue to keep an eye on that for parts of Minnesota and northern Wisconsin.
2: Well, as we look at the drought monitor from last week. I'm not sure if Jennifer touched on it or not, but as we look at drought in the United States, according to the August 8th drought monitor, moderate to exceptional drought covers about 25 and a half percent of the United States, which is an increase compared to the week prior. However, we are receiving reports that drought conditions in portions of Western Iowa improved the past week, but dryness statewide here in Iowa is still worse than it was two weeks ago. As we look at other states across the nation, Tanner, uh, we're definitely seeing, I think, still some improvements, but some areas that are worsening in other portions. As we look at the crop conditions report for the week of August 13th, or I should say, as of August 13th, 96% of the corn in the top 18 growing states is silking, and 65% of corn has reached the dough stage. As we look at conditions, 13% of corn is rated poor to very poor, down 1% from the previous week. 28% is in fair condition and 59% in good to excellent condition, up 2% from the week prior. When we look at soybeans, 94% of soybeans in the top growing states are blooming. And 78% of U.S. soybeans are in the pod stage. When we look at conditions, 12% of soybeans are in poor to very poor conditions, down 2 percentage points. 29% of soybeans are rated fair, down 3 percentage points from last week. And just 59% of soybeans are rated good to excellent, which increased 5% compared to the week prior, Tanner. So we're certainly starting to see some things improve in that good to excellent category, but also some things decline in the poor to very poor categories. And as we've mentioned, we've got some tours coming up next week, but some folks here are also indicating that it's almost time for combines to roll in some of our southern states.
0: Yeah, it's amazing what a little bit of rain will do to crop conditions. We also saw that the harvest progress for spring wheat moved ahead 13 percentage points to just over, just under a quarter percent completed. That is still beyond behind the five-year average. So we'll keep an eye on all crops through that. Side of things. We are watching food inflation. The food inflation rate is the lowest in nearly two years. The U.S. food inflation rate has been on a decline since last fall and has now fallen to 4.9%, aided by the second month in a row of modestly lower prices for meat, poultry, fish, and eggs. The government announced it's the lowest food inflation rate since September of 2021. The categories just mentioned are economy-wide. They are looking at price increases by 3.2% over the last 12 months, ending in July. The Consumer Price Index report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics said the annual inflation rate has fallen by about two-thirds since last summer. The inflation outside of food and energy has fallen to its lowest level in any three-month period since that same September 2021. Bacon prices were nearly 11% lower. That was the largest decline out of all pork products that included pork chops, ribs, breakfast sausage, and more. The volatile egg prices were down nearly 14% from last July. Milk was 4.5% lower, and frozen vegetables were 17% more. I think we could uh, see that based upon the news reports that we had in uh, a lot of weather issues where most United States vegetables are grown, whether it was through early season hail or through drought conditions. We also saw margarine prices up 13, 11.3%. The meats, poultry, and fish index declined just two-tenths month over month, but that same decline was reported the month before, which adds up to where we reached reached this time. So we're continuing to keep an eye on these food groups as well as what the largest expenses are for Americans as they consume 13 and a half cents of every dollar that their house spends into the food market. So they're still continuing to watch that portion of the share. But good news there to see food prices starting to not climb nearly as quickly.
2: Yeah, Tanner, but uh, shockingly, we saw online grocery sales slide 7% for the year. The U.S. online grocery market posted $7.2 billion in total sales, down 7% compared to last year, according to their latest monthly report survey that took some fresh data at the end of July. This month's downtrend was seen across all three receiving methods, so pickup, delivery, and ship to home were the three methods specifically that they looked at there. But Tanner, as we look at July numbers overall, they said order frequency dropped compared to last year. So I don't know if that's a factor of people feeling more comfortable to go back to the grocery store, having more capacity and time to go back to the grocery store. I'm I'm a little surprised that these numbers have declined because I think I guess I was assuming people got used to the convenience of being able to order or pick up groceries as opposed to having to physically go into the store.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I know that there's been conversations around how quickly those online grocery options grew, and maybe the quality of, of help uh, did not follow the growth trajectory as well. So maybe it's just overall disappointment in the service. We also see maybe some disappointment in the cattle market. The battle between packers and feedlots has become one worth noting. As we talked yesterday during our Market Monday conversations, feedlots can opt to use a couple of different marketing strategies if the packers aren't paying the price, because what we're seeing is packers cutting processing speeds, trying to slow down the cash market. Last week's estimated weekly slaughter was somewhat uh, unnerving as it triggered a whole new set of questions. The week's slaughter was only estimated at 603,000 head feedlots immediately begin to wonder how long packers intend to keep processing speeds at this low of a rate. The report from WASDE did share that beef production decreased by 180 million pounds last month, as fed steer and heifer slaughter speeds have reduced significantly. Thankfully, feedlots are current right now and don't have an overbearing show list that is immediately ready to be butchered. But that won't last forever, so we'll continue to keep an eye on what is going on. But nevertheless, both traders, packers, and feedlots, as well as cattlemen, have a lot to sort out through the weeks ahead. We'll continue to keep an eye on this and the processing speeds, as well as the beef demand when we have more Market Monday conversations.
2: Well, Ta- Tanner, as we look at the Black Sea region, Romania is, once again, not very happy about their relationship with Ukraine. Romania said they aim to double the monthly transit capacity of Ukrainian grain to its ports at Constantada to 4 million metric tons in the coming months, particularly as they've seen an increase in Ukrainian grain. They said they're trying to hire more staff to ease the passage of vessels And that they're trying to also increase the transit capacity after a meeting with representatives from the EU, U.S., Moldova and Ukraine last week. Uh, Doesn't sound like they're going to be cutting off exports through that region, because as we know, that was one of the asks Romania had made previously to the EU. And that does not sound like that is currently on the table, Tanner.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate, but we don't have a lot of great news. Out of that reason, Russia's report, or out of that region, Russia is reporting two civilians were injured by shelling in Belgorod. It's also uh, going to see 15 people injured in the western region of Lviv. So Russian missile strikes struck Ukraine overnight, destroying key infrastructure. Kiev is continuing to push back on criticism that its counteroffensive is not advancing fast enough. Ukraine's ally Poland is uh, holding the largest military parade in decades as that tension continues to build. The U.S. also announced, as reported yesterday, nearly 200 million in extra security package for air defense munitions, artillery rounds, and mine clearing equipment. When you come back, stateside Delaney, is there still a trucker shortage? So we saw in 2022 that headline grabbed. A lot of newspapers and news sources, but it didn't take long for those with an economics degree to figure out. The problem wasn't that there was a shortage of truckers. Truckers simply weren't being compensated enough to entice them to continue working. So now a year and a half later, after the first headlines came about, we saw a large American trucking company, Yellow Trunkie, present a bankruptcy filing. So they shut down and uh, provide immediate notice to their employees that they were no longer going to be in business. Freight companies are struggling now with reduced demand, which threatens even more of the trucking jobs. For trucking, this is often a career step up from entry level wage employment, as they look to provide more skilled truck drivers and those with more experience the ability to chase these routes. The number of new CDL licenses issued are about half of what the current truckers numbers have been each year. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that Delaney, but maybe just maybe those headlines will come true to a shortage of Truck drivers. We'll continue to keep an eye on that one. There's always warning signs, but it doesn't seem like we are in a point of uh, contention right now.
2: Well, Tanner, we are also potentially going to see a shortage of exports this year as the USDA put out some fresh numbers for ag exports and imports for the trade year, which starts October 1st of 2022 and runs through September 30th of this year we're going to see a trade deficit, according to the USDA, for the first time since 2020. The gap here is expected to come in at $198 billion of ag imports versus $181 billion of ag exports. As I mentioned there, first time we've seen that trade deficit or the number of Imports being greater than the number of exports for the first time since 2020. And they said zooming in, particularly on a couple of different exports, corn exports projected lower, uh, as we know from last week's report. Exports for livestock, though, however, are also sliding. And beef exports in particular are down 13% year over year for the first half of 2023 and certainly are playing their part in this potential trade deficit that we can see for 2023, Tanner, which I think could speak overall to the bigger picture that is the ag economy cyclical market that we're in maybe shifting here more towards a negative pattern once again.
0: Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one as we look at both economic patterns uh, and the agronomic patterns as far as cycles that we take a look at. But I'm out of headlines for today. So what do you say we jumped into where markets are going to open?
2: Let's do that, Tanner. As we look at the overnight markets here, as we head into the opening session, things are not as rosy as they were yesterday for the soybean or corn pits. September corn down two and three quarters cents at 473. Decent new crop corn down three cents at 484 and three quarters. Soybeans here today will open lower as well, with the September contract down 15 and 3 quarters cents in the overnight at 1337 and a quarter. No new crop beans down 5 and a quarter cents at 1320 and 3 quarters. In the wheat pits, Chicago September wheat down 8 and 3 quarters cents at 607 and a quarter. Hard red winter wheat down three pennies at 747 and a half. And September spring wheat down two and a half cents at 803. Livestock here today are also showing weakness as we head into the opening session. A quick reminder at where markets closed yesterday. October live cattle shed 65 cents at a buck 80.67. September feeder cattle down a dollar 32 and a half at 250 12 and a half. And October Lean Hawks down $2.17.5 at $79.15. And for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we're going to jump into some audio that we found with Brownfield Ag News on a study capturing the environmental impact of precision ag adoption.
3: The equipment manufacturers have recently partnered with some other agricultural groups to look at the impact of precision agriculture technology and how that's benefiting our environment. Can you tell us the basis of this study? Is this something you've done before? What did it encompass?
1: Well, the the whole premise of the study is, you know, if you're a farmer and you are taking advantage of precision agriculture, logically you you recognize that uh, you know your tractor that is driving down the driving down the field in a straight row and doesn't overlap, probably using less fuel. But there hasn't been a really good way to quantify what that uh, amounts to. And so when we kind of posed that question, dug a little bit deeper, said, well, if we're using less fuel, what about less active ingredient of fertilizer? What about uh, less active ingredient of crop protection? What about, uh, you know, carbon emissions and things such as that. So we really kind of, you know, explored that that curiosity and say, what does that mean? uh, You know, when you combine all of the adoption of precision agriculture together, so we can tell a good positive story about agriculture to the environmental community and the public at large.
3: A lot of different areas in precision agriculture. How did you go about quantifying this?
1: Well, the first thing we needed to do was to to narrow down uh, what was included in the study. And and for the purposes of the audience, we really wanted to focus in on sort of five pieces of technology that are widely available today. That's auto guidance, machine section control, variable rate spray, fleet uh, uh, analytics and telematics, and precision irrigation. So we wanted to go to those that have a level of adoption uh, high enough to have good numbers, but also to to tell a story that is that is truly quantifiable. What we didn't include, and this gets really exciting, but there's some great technologies that are just uh, beyond the horizon, like you know, see and treat uh, control and smart combines. We intentionally did not include those in in this particular study because the numbers are are not are not solid enough to to be able to to. You know, tell the good story, but we do also want to say that in the future we we'll, we look forward to including those numbers because, man, that that, that makes a really big difference on uh, on the environmental benefits of, of precision agriculture.
3: A lot of different specific equipment for specific commodities. Was this narrowed down to maybe some different things that have been grown, or what is encompassed when you say precision agriculture and the things that's helping to produce?
1: For for the most part, I mean the the footprint of of where you are is going to be most interested in sort of row crops and broad acre crops, so corn, soybean, wheat, cotton, peanuts, you know, wheat and sorghum. That's really where the the bulk of our focus was because that's also where the largest uh, adoption is. But but we're also quickly looking at other technologies that uh, include you know uh, specialty crops and high value crops and even forage and hay, uh, where the uh, where the benefits kind of kind of play out. They play out in a slightly different way, but the story is, is very similar. When you use technology uh, to do your job better, um, whether it's applying you know the right the right chemical at the right time at the right place or the right fertilizer exactly where it's needed, the crop grows better and and has less of an environmental footprint.
3: Putting some numbers behind that impact is what you're seeing here. What kind of difference is there that you're able to
1: capture? Well, the, the big story that we went to was uh, we really looked at, at five areas, and that was productivity, so overall productivity, basically yield, but we also looked at fertilizer usage, herbicide usage, fossil fuel savings, and water usage, and all of those actually came together to come up with sort of some, some specific carbon reductions as well. Productivity is where the biggest gain comes from uh, when, you, when you use precision agriculture, well, we were basically able to, to estimate based on the last 18 years worth of data of precision agriculture being employed that roughly you can, you can isolate 4% of the productivity gains uh, have come at, as a result of precision agriculture or specifically because of auto guidance, variable rate technology, and section control. So that is 4% more crop produced on the same level of acres. Or if you want to put that in some pretty simple terms to uh, to the environmental community, that's the equivalent of about 10 million acres that were avoided because the crops were more efficient or even more specific. That's four and a half Yellowstone National Parks just because of precision agriculture. And our study kind of projects into the future that if we get to full level of adoption, there's another six percent uh, productivity that, is, that that just using the existing technology and you get to a full adoption. Those are big numbers when you say a, a full ten percent reduction in the about in the amount of land needed to produce the same level of crop. That's that's a that's a big story that environmentalists sort of like
3: we see a lot of supply chain action looking to capture carbon, increase some of the conservation practices farmers have. Do you ever see something like a precision agriculture Meeting some of those sustainability goals or guidelines, or even you know encouraging the producer to have this in their operation.
1: Well, I, I, let me let me answer that question in a slightly different way. Uh, yes, yeah, the the short answer is yes. I mean, you 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 know the the whole premise of of a carbon market and being able to to quantify the carbon reduction that happens with production practices is based on data, and you have to have precision agriculture for that data. Uh, to, to be in place. So it's kind of fundamental for that entire piece. But the, but the way I want to answer that question is if we look at uh, – one of the technologies we took a look at was uh, fleet analytics and telematics. And when a – you know, you don't know what you don't know and you don't measure what you don't know. And, or excuse me, you don't, you don't track what you don't measure. So what we found is that when a, when a farmer employs telematics data that, you know, sort of says here's what our fuel usage is, they were able to specifically, uh, you know, make practice changes. Really, just simple, simple turning the dial just a little bit in their operation that made significant changes. Such as, you know, I grew up on a farm in Missouri, and it was very common when we would go to lunch, we'd leave the, you know, the tractor idling uh, uh, while we're eating lunch because we want the cab to be cool when we get inside. Well, telematics data points to what that actually does from a fuel burn standpoint. And recognizes that about 20% of the fuel uh, is wasted just during idle time. So it's just some habit changes uh, when you when you have that data in front of you makes a big difference. The same thing of, uh, occurs when you, you know, with the precision ag data that's available in front of you, a farmer can quickly look at their uh, their telematics data or look at their data of their total operation and make some changes based on what's available that wasn't available before when they weren't employing this technology.
3: Kurt, uh, this does cover a lot of different areas in precision ag. What else would you highlight to pull out, and maybe how you'll be using this information moving forward?
1: Well, I, one thing that is, is is quite interesting is we look specifically, you know, here in twenty summer twenty twenty three, water being uh, you know a topic of interest. You know, here in the Midwest, where we're where we're dealing with both uh, a lot of rain and a little bit of drought, sort of at the same time. Um, Precision irrigation is one of those tools that I think is one that we want to continue to to pull on that string a little bit and tell that story. So that's one I want to pull out as just as a highlight that uh, needs a little bit more study, but looking forward to telling that story. Now, where we intend to use this uh, this study and where we've been effective at using this study is, you know, communicating to the general public, to regulators, to policymakers, and those that are, you know, kind of making decisions uh, about, you know, environmental decisions that, hey, our farmers have a rich history of being environmental stewards and precision agriculture is one of those tools that's in their toolbox that is allowing them to do a whole lot more with a whole lot less and we want to make sure that that story is told and that there are incentives in place for farmers to take advantage of that technology as they're considering you know their business operation for the next 5 10 and 20 years
3: Kurt, any last thoughts to wrap us up with? This is a really big topic, and we narrowed it down to a short timeline. But what last thoughts are you watching? And maybe where uh, you hope to see some of this gain in the future.
1: Well, I would say that you know we're in the middle of the farm bill debate, and these topics are front and center. And I would encourage all of your listeners to get engaged, uh, get engaged with the, the with the conversation. If they have friends that are not involved in the farming operation, to to uh, you know, take a take a look at the farms, see some of this technology in in motion, because it is it is amazing how far our uh, farms have come in the last five, ten, twenty years, uh, and and the, the future is even more exciting. So I'd encourage everyone to just get involved in the conversation, because you know the, the public opinion does matter uh, when it comes to making incentives available and even things you know important policy decisions like the twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four farm bill.
2: Thanks again for listening to another Tech Tuesday episode. Be sure to tune back in for the rest of the week for news from Delaney and Tanner. And don't be afraid to reach out if you have any interviews that you would be interested in hearing on the podcast. In the meantime, we're going to let you go.